Welcome, you're listening to Required Reading by Monash Tech School. We're here to help you understand what you're reading and why it matters. Today, we will be discussing The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, and we're wondering, is there a pattern of socio-economical events that lead to a loss of power? My name's Lauren Boddicker, joined by author-writer Catherine Brabin and Victoria Passmore from Mount Waverley Secondary School. Thanks for coming on, guys. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Lauren. Good to be here. The Hunger Games, I'm sure we're all familiar with, is about a future version of our society on Earth experiencing the aftermath of environmental destruction and political injustice. We are, as far as we know, left with 12 districts and the capital making Pan Am. We see how this world shapes and ultimately propels a young teenager into facing her beliefs in a literal and public arena where she must battle for survival against 23 other district tributes. Will she be able to remain true to herself or will she become lost in the bloodbath? There's a lot to unpack, I think. I think that the the research behind, I think that uh, when you actually read what Suzanne Collins, what the motivations were and what guided her into creating this dystopian world stems from ancient Rome and the gladiators and I think one of the fascinating things for me with dystopian literature is how, and for students to understand, is the language of the dystopian world and how the author creates this dystopian world. Yeah, I think that when you're looking at language, it's one of the first things that students have to get a grasp on is is that authors create a world using language that has different meanings and um, sources from perhaps our past, invented words as well. Um, language building a world is very important and I wanted to get into our sort of, to, to get into this world being built, the world of Panem and the 13 districts. So it's a very unsettled world and I wanted to ask what kind of political system you think this world is running on, if you had any thoughts on that. A dictatorship that is grasping at control um, through uh, any means possible. So um, it is, when you said before about the actual games themselves are a reminder for the districts that they cannot beat the capital. This is a reminder that they are in control and they control their lives and the lives of their young ones. I posed the same question of Dr. Steve Roberts, Associate Professor of Sociology at Monash University. Yeah, there's a number of um, frameworks, I think, and it's probably up for considerable debate. Um, My immediate take on it is that it's probably uh, more than a dictatorship, but it's a totalitarian state um, or some version of authoritarianism. But what's interesting about that, I think, is depending on which side of the political spectrum you sit, like in the contemporary real world, you might have a different view there. So I know, or my sense is that both the left and the right find that the Hunger Games structure has an appeal in as much as it's something they would be against. So I think on the left, if you're kind of like socialist leaning or left of center, you might perceive that this is a a capitalist state, actually, as well as um, having remnants of totalitarianism but then if you're on the right and you're kind of pro-capitalist you would view view the hunger games um, framework as being or the the kind of political system as being uh totalitarian and 
overtly communist in some respects, um, which for me doesn't quite fit. But I can I can see that there are different interpretations. Would you be able to give like a definition of totalitarianism as well? Yeah, the definition aligns, I think, really well with what you can see in the Hunger Games. So this sense that the 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 middle, the centre, the government, therefore, is all controlling and all powerful, and the government uses its uh, forces, I suppose, to repress individual identity and individual decision making, and therefore it's all controlling. So, and, and having no opposition party is also a key characteristic of a totalitarian state. So, the government is all knowing, all powerful, and provides the possibilities for life in, in every which way. That's kind of the, the main idea, I think. Fascinating when you actually look at the capital in terms of the gaudiness, the technology. The reality TV show spectacle that occurs with the, with the actual games themselves. I think that's something with um, students as well that we look at is reality TV, and it's a way to start off thinking about the Hunger Games for them as well to look at reality TV and how they create bullies. What is what are they actually observing? Uh, is it real? Do the people sign up for it? Are they aware of how they're actually being portrayed in these reality shows? And we know that editing um, can create the um, fabricated uh, relationships and arguments and they always have to have some sort of like a, a bad person. It's interesting too now with Big Brother just coming back because they have that ethical consideration there. Do they tell the contestants? about COVID-19, do they keep it quiet? Will that alter the game? Will that alter how it views? Are they, are they ethically responsible to tell them about what's happening in the outside world? Continuing on from that, something that I see with that uh, dictatorship system and autocracy is something I'm really interested in, which is the, kind of the control of narrative, how that, that representation um, is something that is really so so important to the capital in keeping that control. Um, and another part aspect of the system that interested me is the control of the production and natural resources uh, and how each district had their own kind of specialty, I guess, you know, coal mining and um, uh, lumber mills and that sort of thing. And all of that is, of course, getting fed back into, you know, the capital to support their their lavish uh, lifestyles. There's just that, that absolute control of every every aspect of production. It's so obvious, the disparity, of, of course, to everybody, um, which I think is so, you know, blatant in our, in our own world as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was really interested in how they sort of abused those resources in those different areas. This reminded me of a few different political systems, like a case system or... Um, a semi-feudal system, landowners controlling resources by giving less privileged people the opportunity to live on that land. For living here, I'll take your resources or a percentage of your resources. It's that kind of consistent fencing in people of what they can and can't do and their rights, keeping that going for decades that puts on this tradition of maybe what people might look like or the wealth that they may have in the future or the wealth that their children may inherit, it creates this intrinsic um, line of, of poverty or of middle class or of uh, upper class 
And I thought that was really interesting because I think that's definitely, of course, relevant to how we're living today. Absolutely, because we take advantage of uh, people in third world countries to produce our goods and services. And most people are totally unaware of where our goods and services come from. They're unaware of how, you know, eating chocolate means that you're contributing to the deforestation and um, farming lands and all those sorts of things. I think it's also um, interesting to note that within District 12, um, there's disparity there too. So you have those that work in the scene, that there are parts of um, District 12 that are poorer than this, the other parts. And we find out about um, Katniss's mother came from a, probably a, a wealthier part of, this, of the town or whatever, however we term that. So you have these images of these worn down people with fingernails and the dirt and the coal that can never be removed from their, their lungs, their skin. It, it, it permeates their every, every part of their being. Even in the, what would be considered the wealthier parts and the, the poorer parts, of, there's still within each um, district that sort of disparity. I asked Steve Roberts, in what other ways have communities or people been oppressed throughout history? Yeah, there's, there's many, of course, and they're, in the real world they are often not as overt, but if we think of one very overt case now is the way that Trump and his um, his party and staff and uh, yeah his wider kind of um, entourage speak about fake news and so on. So it's a control of the hearts and minds of people through through the media or through interpretations of the media. That seems to be more important than ever, especially because we have twenty four hour news and social media and so on. So controlling of information flows is really important. Um, but let's not also forget that we also see even in this case with Trump and, and the US, that the threats of force as well. So I think probably what's really key in the book is that there's this idea of the Hunger Games, which kind of operates as this, uh, well, it has, has multiple kind of functions, but um, it's about capturing the hearts and minds of people and keeping them kind of in their place in some ways. But there's also the threat of force as well. Um, so the state can use this legitimate form of force. And we see this, as I say, in the US with um, the police kind of, inverted quotes, management of the um, Black Lives Matters protest. Um, so yeah, I think states can and do use a variety of means to control, um, to, to, to endorse a version of social control that keeps things looking civilized, but actually it's uh, a disguise of them for um, the fact that we're not very civilized and we have lots of problems in lots of states. How this world was built and how it reflected our world today was really clever on the part of Suzanne Collins, uh, especially the districts uh, 1 to 13 uh, and being, I did some digging and I discovered, and I'm sure you did too, um, that there were similarities or it was almost a direct reference to the American Revolution and the 13 colonies. I just really like that bit of history coming into the book. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think in the first few pages it, it, it says that this was the it was the US at certain times. You think, oh the distance between the districts and how they have to get these fast trains and it did make me think they I guess it's it lent uh, an extra kind of aspect of reality to it um to me, which I think is what really strong dystopian fiction does. It's we suspend our disbelief in a sense, I like guess in a literary kind of technique term. You would 
um, it, it makes you feel as though there's a realistic element in the. In but I actually didn't think I didn't realize that about the um, American Revolution. But it's yeah, and I guess that makes makes sense to me now hearing that I talked before about the control over over storytelling and often when a war or a revolution happens there's a certain story told about it afterwards and whoever gets to tell that story is usually it's the victors you know write history that's often a, a saying that you hear so I think this is kind of that to the extreme. I think colonies also had their purposes as well. Some of them were agricultural and farming and one was fishing and one was manufacturing. So this um, area is a part of what America once was. I think Pan Am was like North America. So it's the sort of result of almost climate change because we see in the beginning that it's talking about or the origins of it are floods and droughts and fires, storms and rising sea levels. And we hear about this kind of thing on the news all the time, almost. But what did you think about this reference to climate change in the book? I think it serves as a warning for, you know, for the readers to see that um, this is one possible outcome. Because, uh, you know, this is aimed at, at, at younger readers as well. This is one. Um, outcome and reasoning behind creating a dystopian world. This dystopian world has, has come as a result of the effects of climate change. So that can have this kind of impact. You say it could be a possible future. It could very well be a possible one outcome that can occur. And underlying is always the fear of totalitarianism. Yes, I, I completely agree. Um, that connection between climate change is a warning, but also this kind of excessive capitalism um, that you see in the capital, the lavishness of their, their clothing and their makeup, and you get a sort of a sense of waste as well with sort of the, the you know, eating so much food and things. Um, and I remember that was something that, you know, Katniss kind of couldn't believe what, you know, the food and how rich it was. Capitalism and that excess does drive already these um, disparities in, you know, in, in class and in wealth and climate change will only will only exacerbate that. And again, just the fact that the resources need to be so tightly controlled in each district, the fact that Peter's family can't actually eat the bread that they cook, I think that's kind of the such a... Um, so, you know, a stark criticism and example too. It's almost like a, a little symbol of the bigger, the bigger picture that these people who are, you know, whether it's creating or growing, aren't aren't able to consume literally. Uh, and I think that's sort of such a broader example of kind of what we have, you know, here in the West. We're consuming all of these, you know, you know, coffee, chocolate, um, fast fashion, uh, and they're made by people who, um, you know, wouldn't be able to consume. Um, you know, consume them at the cost that we at the, that we buy them at. So, yeah, I just think it. Um, thinking about it uh, in more detail, it's kind of incredible to me how she kind of gets those. I guess I would call that intersecting themes. It, it is. I actually like the fact that panem literally means bread in ancient Roman times. So panem is bread, which they would have given people who. So the bread and circuses um, idea going to the games but the way they use she uses bread throughout the book as well uh, I like the fact that there's um, bread for each district a different type of bread that represents each district the shape of the bread um, the 
the fact that she gets given bread from Rue's district uh, as a reward as well, and that's her connection, that's what saved her when Peter burnt the bread and gave her bread. Yeah, uh, bread is such a symbolic type of food, isn't it? It's a humble type of food, but it's also a staple in most cultures. We all have our renditions and uh, there's that term of breaking bread with your loved ones, and it's supposed to unite people as well. So it's really great that she she infused that throughout the book as a sort of motif. It's more of a, it's a hint, this global warming, climate change concept sort of warns us and warns readers. And it also reminds me that I think books in general are just a tool to um, ward against repeating history. You're talking about it briefly, Victoria, the censorship that the capital has over all of the districts and how they broadcast and publicize propaganda and everything, like the story about District 13, but the sort of control they have over televisions and what what audiences can see uh, reminds me of a few media and communications theories like the hyperdenic needle theory and the, the agenda setting theory as well. The capital has this influence over what different districts should find important or um, what they should be watching, and that definitely maintains that level of control. I think the censorship is throughout the televising of the games. So each of those tributes has to appear happy. If they appear sad or scared, then they won't get anyone to back them. So the aim of them going in there is to present a persona to be able to get maybe something that will help them get through the games something to help them survive. You saw the biggest censorship, I think, at one stage when Rue dies and the act of defiance from Katniss by humanising the whole thing and putting um, the flowers around her. When they actually televised that, they didn't show the flowers. Yes, I would agree. Uh, that kind of, that absolute control of that of the story and how the story is portrayed, so, so sort of pervasive. Dr. Roberts told me further about the risks and aims of the media upon society. Constant exposure to particular types of misinformation is really uh, an important thing to consider. And the, the concern with social media platforms is, or the debates are now around whether or not they should intervene when um, blatant falsehoods are being propagated by the President of the US and others, and the impact of that. And the obvious, um, the, the kind of simple way for a student to think about the importance of these things is if exposure to ideas didn't work then we would never buy anything right the reason that uh, um, capitalism relies on marketing and shops and other organizations rely on marketing is because exposure to ideas gives us a sense of what we want and um, what our possibilities are and i think that translates upwards to ideas around the way the government want, what the government wants us to see and how governments want us to behave so media, messaging, propaganda, whatever you want to call it, is, um, is a really important function, has an important function in contemporary society. I know that in the Soviet Union, the, the radio was really important as sort of the, the wireless being something that was fairly new in terms of being in households um, at that time, but it became sort of a strong tool to be putting the state's voice into people's homes. And I think that's a really strong thing that happens in the Hunger Games, that they kind of they're controlling what the image, but they're also on. Another sort of thing about the, the censorship that I found quite kind of frightening was how it kind of became essential for 
Katniss and Pete have to implicate themselves in it. Katniss does sort of say to herself, you know, I've got to, you know, I can't show prior here or, you know, I need to, you know, get sponsors or, you know, present a certain way. I don't want to look weak. And also each of the districts is um, is forced to watch the games. That's the time that they have power on and that is the time that they can, um, they have to watch it and they have to see. This seems extreme. Have governments ever enforced control this way? Like during the 70s, um, I'm, I'm from the UK and in, during, during the 70s in the UK, it was like the uh, a shortened working week basically and a general strike, which meant that people were only allowed to use power at certain times of the day. And now that wasn't for political ends per se, but it was a result of political processes. So we can see that there is power to enact these kinds of things and prevent the individual from doing what they want because the government controls utilities, right, to, to an extent. And on a very, very micro scale, you can think about the same sort of situation eventuating in the summers in Australia. Like it's really hot, so we're told that we shouldn't use our, use our water. And actually, probably people like you and I think that's a really good idea that we should be um, aiming to be more sustainable with our water supply. But the, the point I suppose I'm getting at is that those mechanisms exist for governments to be able to tell us what to do and how to behave. So it's not, even though this is a work of fiction, you can kind of see how it gets there, that the government says this is the right time to use the power source. And it actually, in, in the book, uh, kind of coincides with their um, needs and desires of the, of the government as well. So for Katniss, in the for her all the time, it's Prim is watching me. Can't cry, I've got to look like I'm coping for Prim. I guess if we talk about Katniss as, as a person and how desensitised she is as a person. She's 16, but she's been spending for herself since she was 11. She's cut herself off. Even at that very young age, she's saying things like, I will never marry, I will never have children. She doesn't understand emotion. Is, I, I was very impressed by the way that she was able to manipulate the emotional storyline by thinking, what does Hamish want me to do? He, she manipulates Peter to tell the story of when he first fell in love with her, basically. And he has all this emotion and he's telling her the story and she's doing, she's goading him on to get, do it for the audience and for Hamish. And she gets the reward for them both to survive. She gets that lamb stew that she talked about in her interviews, her favourite food. Beneath it, she has real feelings, but she's unable to deal with that. She doesn't know how to deal with it. Um, she's trying to survive and eventually, I don't whether she has, she's realised that her, she has feelings for Gail and she does have feelings for Peter, but um, that's not going to do her any good at the moment. She, yeah, I definitely picked up that she finds it hard to acknowledge how she's really feeling um, she, I found that she was just very logical and very objective and she was all about surviving. And you could definitely sense that feeling of emotion and sensitivity towards Prim, of course. And she did say that Prim was like one of the only characters or one of the only, sorry, I say characters as reader, um, that she actually loves, that she could admit to loving. But everywhere else, she's very like, I've got to do this and I've got to do this. And if, you know, if I don't, hunt if i don't get food then maybe prim will starve because there was that whole um event that happened around her father's passing and her mother not being able to cope and sort of um sort of retreating from being a motherly figure she became quite depressed and that's understandable but she left her two daughters in the lurch and they couldn't really um 
they couldn't survive until Katniss was like able to hunt and that kind of thing. So I thought that was um that was a really interesting reveal, a nice part of a nice part of Katniss um, supplying food and these goods to the people around her in Prim as a way of showing her emotions and her feeling, even though she doesn't like directly verbally say I love you. Um, it's those little things that she did which highlights that for me. I also find it when Peter, when they before they leave the, the training center, before they go into the games, and Peter talks about how he wants to remain himself, and she doesn't understand that at first. She doesn't understand what he means. But the fact that you can fight back by retaining so it, it, your own humanity within it. And I think that's a question for students too. Can you retain your humanity in inhumane conditions? Can you fight for your life and still remain true to your own beliefs? She talks to Gail about going in to kill, and he says, how different can it be? A bow pulled, an arrow shot. Amazingly similar in execution, but one's an animal and one's a person. I thought that she didn't seem to, Katniss didn't seem to have much of a realisation of what was going around her, like she knew that how the capital was treating the districts was wrong. I, I feel like she had that sort of judgment, but I don't think she felt there was a need or an ability to challenge it. I, I don't think she um, acknowledged that she would ever challenge what was happening to her society or her community. Um, I felt like that was definitely kind of enforced upon her, especially when um, Madge gives her that Mockingjay pin and she's not sure what it means. She doesn't recognise the symbol of the bird and she talks to Rue at one point when they're hunting together as allies. Um, she finds out from Rue that uh, this bird is a symbol for her and it has meaning for Rue and she says to her, you know, you can have the pin, it, it has more meaning to you. She kind of, she doesn't accept anything that's influencing her, like politically or otherwise. It's really, it's interesting hearing this um, this discussion and I think because I guess when she was growing up and she has this such a foundational trauma, I guess, of her father's passing and kind of not being able to grieve, I suppose, because she had to then and survive, literally. I think that survival mode has just been the way she functions, her way of um, measuring things. So is this essential for me to survive? Physical need kind of trumps everything. Her inner world has never been nurtured. She doesn't sort of uh, understand her feelings or um, what they what they are, what they mean. Yeah, an interesting question potentially for students as well as how symbols become important and what is a what is a symbol how is that important for individuals but then also for kind of uh, groups uh, how are they important for uh, for keeping power but also for giving people hope I think that's a big part of um, Katniss in sort of her her development I think it's like Katniss has lived in the games all her life she's always been fighting for her life. She's always been fighting to find food. Essentially, she's still fighting the capital and trying to survive. I particularly like the Mockingjay because of the idea that it was initially the Jabberjay, which was sent in to record in, you know, 
record the conversations and to spy on people and then go and report back to the capital. But then people started feeding the capital misinformation. So that's an act of rebellion and, and sending that back. So they then gave up on the Jabba Jays and left them in the wild, but they then met, mated with mockingbirds. So we ended up with a mockingjay and it was still one bird that uh, Rue used in her district and the songs could then send um, messages to people. And I also it also linked back to her father who did sing and um, sang, sang songs to the mockingjays as well. So I think it's a very powerful symbol for not just for the sort of rebellion but also for Katniss and her memories. And I think it's a great thing that it's the power of the natural world over the capital. I thought the characters were sort of influenced by their surroundings, the physical attributes as well. In the book, they talk about Katniss having olive skin and straight black hair and grey eyes. And there's that difference between herself and her mother and sister. Um, and then we hear about the description of Rue and, and Thresh, who live this agricultural farming lifestyle. And I think it um, reiterates those sort of divides as well. How do you, how important do you think these divides are between these groups within this book? Most definitely, because we have what they call the career tributes. So the career tributes are from the wealthier districts and they are well-fed. They have access to the weaponry. They practice, they're trained for it before they get into the game. So they're like professional tribute. Their weaknesses, Katniss finds, is that they've never had to want for food. We don't get a, a good sense of many of the other districts, but I think it's important to note that um, Katniss has always believed that District 12 is the poorest district. Then she finds out what happens in Rue's district and how harsh they are on them and that a boy, I think they said he was autistic, I can't remember exactly, but a boy who didn't know any better, walked in with the night vision goggles and they basically killed him uh, because he had broken the rules. So, yeah, there is de definitely disparity between the districts, the sponsors as well, who can attract the sponsorships. You know, the big, good-looking, very strong, I suppose almost Viking-like people that are in District 1, like um, Cato. There was a moment when Katniss and... Peter and Hamish and Effie were all on the train. They were served this amount of food. Uh, Effie makes that comment about, you know, at least they have decent manners um, because the previous two ate everything with their hands. The different districts have different ideas about each other and they don't really know what's going on because they have a very skewed vision of these different districts. So Katniss just eats with her hands to show Effie, you know, what's what basically. They don't really see these other districts unless it's through a television screen. It kind of reminds me of misconceived judgments in our own world. The use of physical space is very telling and very interesting in the novel um, because we, you know, we realise that the, the residents of certain districts can't move between them so they don't know what it's like. Um, and there's a really powerful scene early on when they're on the train and Katniss sort of says, you know, I can't help myself, but we can't help ourselves. We run to the window just to see the capital and see what it looks like uh, because there is that kind of, you know, allure of a physical space that you can, you can never go to. 
Dr. Roberts explained to me some reasoning for and dangers behind bordering. Control of people uh, has a long history in terms of people's movement. It's a, it's a key concern um, for, for governments and populations. So first of all, if we think about um, migration, um, so think about the European Union um, as being this place that, uh, well, pre-European Union, I suppose, was uh, every port or every border, one would have to reproduce their documents and um, one is either allowed or, or permitted to travel through a country or is not. So people outside of the European Union were not, are not, and we see the, the circumstances with refugees arriving on the shores in, in Italy and Turkey and so on, trying to travel to other parts of Europe so they can try and find safe haven. So, uh, but it's also a really powerful way of dividing people between uh, aliens and, and citizens, I suppose. Those are, those are ideas, like one is not an alien or, or a citizen. But those are really powerful ways of saying these people belong over here. And when they encroach into this space, that uh, is a problem. And this has, is linked to the second kind of idea, I think, is that there's this notion of a fight for resources. Uh, if you use the Hunger Games parlance to look at the capital, they want people to look around at the competition for resources that's happening all around them, rather than the, the massive resources that are at the top. So I think that kind of like demarcation of like, here's your space and this is where you should stay. And these are the reasons why it's provided as a, provided as a rationale for safety and certainty. But of course, it prevents um, an easy flow of resources and opportunities. Um, and even with I know, like the the arenas that are that are used for the Hunger Games are only used once, and then they become kind of this place to go on holidays. Even if you're from the capital, you go, you rewatch the Hunger Games from years ago. You kind of your that narrative is entrenched even further. But you're able to go to the physical space uh, to see to see it. Um, but of course, there's that not that lack of movement, and I think that's really also a a tactic to not let people, you know, share their common grievances and, you know, potentially, um, you know, form some kind of resistance or realise, hey, we're all in the same kind of position. Um, and, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of power behind that um, restriction of physical space and movement um, and just kind of, again, just only drip-feeding certain information about each other. Um, and it shows how how powerful that can be on on how people act and what they think. I wanted to know as well, what were the crucial moments for you within this book? So, like at the end, when Atlas makes that decision that they should both die, so that you know no one no one wins, and it's that kind of active defiance. And then there's this, oh no, let's stop, you know, let's um let's have two winners. The moment that um the capital have to start changing the rules. Because at first they think, oh, no, we'll let two people win. And then they reverse the rule and say, no, only one person can win. And then, you know, they allow the two of them to win. I think I, think I find it really interesting when there's that one kind of dint in the system that just it starts to kind of set something in motion and it's just a person sort of, you know, challenging the structure of how these games have gone for 70 years. I think it's really interesting how when Katniss um, was going to take those night nightlock berries, um, it was almost, yeah, it wasn't defiance of the capital, but I think the capital just assumed that they were broadcasting to a passive audience. And in reality, they really aren't. I mean, the people in the districts can react how they want to react. There were, I think, maybe some protests or some acts of defiance within the district at the time of these Hunger Games. But I thought that was really interesting that they're not 
passive and I think and the capital made that mistake of thinking that they were I think a crucial moment for me was um, when she did create that floral arrangement around Rue and I think it was also a bit of acknowledgement that she was beginning to directly defy the capital this sort of initial realization that she was challenging how she was being influenced but we were talking about the Roman and Latin influence. Um, I thought it was very cool how they brought the, cor the cornucopia into it as well, this um, horn of abundance concept, and it like literally resembled that as well. It was filled with food and um, weapons and anything they might need, medicine. Was there any symbolism that you really want to bring up as well? Oh, I do love the, this. Is what I got this another time when I um, I didn't really get this the first time, but the obviously all the, the plant names for characters as well. But the fact that Katniss is actually a plant that has a really small um, three-flowered white flower and it has a arrow-shaped leaf and underneath it is a tuber that will sustain you and you can live off it. So her father said, if you can find yourself, you will never go hungry. And I think that's really important about cats. I'd also like to finish up by asking what you would like students to get out of reading The Hunger Games, Victoria. I would like them to get an understanding of how the world is manipulated, how the media manipulates us. Um, and I think that they um, can gain a lot of um, reading and being more sort of discerning in their viewing of, the, of what is happening and be that in a reality TV show as an example of how it can be done, to all the messages that, that students are now bombarded with. But I also would like them to really think about, can you retain your humanity in desperate times and in desperate situations? How can you remain true to yourself when you are being really challenged? Can that, is that possible? Thank you. Yes, that's that's a really good point. Thanks for talking to me about the Hunger Games. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's really enjoyable too. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Tune in for the next episode where we discuss Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury.